that we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images if one's intention is to worship them or to serve God through them. But may not images be permitted in the churches as teaching aids for the unlearned? No, we shouldn't try to be wiser than God. He wants his people instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Last week, as we considered the first commandment, we saw how God has made us to be worshiping creatures, who we are. We are creatures who will worship something. And we instinctively worship what we see as most valuable, as what we see as supreme in our hearts. So in a culture where mostly everyone is spiritual, but a precious few are biblical, We saw that we are to be sensitive to our own tendencies towards idolatry, creating idols in our hearts. And thus we must always strive to understand God as he has revealed himself in scripture. For it is only in his word and by the power of his spirit working with the word that we can properly know God. It is not sufficient to claim a belief in God. We saw last week that there are Several examples, hundreds, thousands, millions of examples of people saying they believe in God, but that not meaning anything relative to Scripture. So we are to understand God as he reveals himself in his word. And it is the free and joyful worship of God that is the highest good for any human creature. Anything created by God to to worship him freely and joyfully is the greatest good of anyone who has been created by God. C.S. Lewis uh, had a long time where he was coming around to see the Bible as true and see Jesus Christ as as being real, but he struggled with this idea of uh, why do Christians think it's so important to constantly be worshiping God and and why does the Bible constantly bring us to to this command of, of sing to him, worship him, worship him. He struggled with that. He struggled that the sovereign God would uh, need, in his mind, need his creatures worshiping and praising him. He would ask things like, is God a a narcissist? Is God a, a megalomaniac? He would think to himself. But as he pondered this more and more, he started going to the Psalms. And he ended up writing a book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms, that is quite rich in a lot of uh, just good thoughts around these beautiful psalms, and he considers all of these things as he is writing this. He's considering the psalms and how they are just chock full of ascribing praise to God. And he realized that as human beings, what we talked about last week, as human beings, we cannot avoid worship and praise. He says this, 
He says, the world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players their favorite game, praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical persons, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, maybe a little bit dated with his word there, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars, even a little bit more dated there at the end. I think now it's rarely politicians, right? Lewis observed that our praising such things completes the enjoyment of that thing. We do not experience the fullest joy that we have, and we don't, we don't enjoy something to the fullest, until we praise it. And thus, the heart, the human heart it, that has been transformed to see the glory and the beauty of God must be able to complete its enjoyment of God by resounding in praise. Lewis realized that to deny people the opportunity to praise God is to rob them of the opportunity to enjoy Him to the fullest. And we think there of the first answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We were created to enjoy God, for He is the most valuable being in the universe. So the Holy Spirit working in and through Scripture allows us to do just that, to enjoy God, because we cannot enjoy Him unless we actually know Him. As we obey God in relation to these commandments and to this first and second commandment, we set ourselves on the right track towards not worshiping false gods, idols which we construct with our imagination. And The second commandment brings us further along towards proper worship. We learn in the second commandment that where God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Do not bow down to them. Do not serve them. What we learn is that it is not enough to seek to worship the correct God. For we must seek to worship the correct God correctly. Did you get that? It's not enough to seek to worship the correct God. You must seek to worship the correct God correctly. And God's word instructs us on the proper way to worship the God of Scripture. When we combine our understanding of these first two commandments, reflect on what they mean, we are well on our way to doing just that, to worshiping God humbly with freedom and joy, knowing that he accepts our worship. Psalm 97 is a great place to turn to reflect on all of these things. And here's where we're going tonight, the central ideas. Psalm 97 shows us that the God who is supremely majestic and supremely valuable. You get that? That's what it tells us about God. It tells us that God is supremely majestic and supremely valuable. That God tells his people how to worship him so that we might do so freely and joyfully. When we are worshiping God the way that he has told us, we can do so freely and joyfully and worship this God who is supremely majestic and supremely valuable. And we're considering this in light of what God says about images in the second commandment. So the first point then is this. Images of God misunderstand his majesty and freedom. Why can we not try to visually represent the God of the Bible in his fullness? 
because that misrepresents and misunderstands his majesty and his freedom. Look with me at verse 1 of Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. We see here that the God of Scripture does not have a rule that is confined to a certain place. He reigns over the whole earth. He is not a king who reigns over just a locality. He is not an alderman who has just one neighborhood or a set of blocks. He is a God who reigns over the whole earth. And this, of course, is unlike the many deities who were worshipped at the time Scripture was written. People walked around with the expectation that as you went from city to city or from place to place, you would be met with different ideas about different gods. Different idols would be crafted according to tradition and belief, and this would greatly vary from city to city, from tribe to tribe. So if you got a composite of all the beliefs in the world, it would be extremely confusing. Which god rules where? To which God are you to offer a sacrifice or try to appease when you are in which place? I forget. But the God of the Bible, his reign is endless. His reign is universal. His reign is so pervasive that all people ought to worship him even to the far reaches of the coastlands. No one can escape his reign. And no one can find a reason for this God not to be worshipped. Verses 2 through 5 comment on the surpassing power of God. The surpassing power of God. It is a piece of grounding evidence as to why he is the God of the whole earth. So verses 2 through 5 kind of ground verse 1. They show that this God really does reign throughout the whole earth because he is so powerful. Verse 2 gives an introduction to the following three to expand upon his power. And it does so by recalling a very familiar event in the life of Israel, Mount Sinai. Verse 2 says this, look with me there. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This is how God appears to Israel on Mount Sinai. In a cloud, being being accompanied by great darkness. To use this in this psalm was a reminder to Israel... That their God is the one who does what he pleases. He cannot be controlled. For just as he dwells in darkness, Scripture also tells us in places like 1 Timothy chapter 6, that God dwells in unapproachable light. Clouds and thick darkness are around him, and yet he dwells in unapproachable light. Thus, when he appears, it can be in darkness or in light. And that reminds us that the God of Scripture is so majestic and so powerful that he cannot be brought within man's reach. It's part of what's going on. He is beyond our reach. And yet at the same time, we see that this God does not act as a tyrant. He acts as a good king. Verse 2 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Right order And justice are the characteristics of a good kingship. A peaceful kingship is one where righteousness and justice are present. And this God, who is supremely powerful, supremely valuable, and his reign is universal, yet reigns according to righteousness and justice. That increases the wonder, then, as you consider the power of God. 
If you consider how powerful he is, it should increase our wonder and our thankfulness that he rules according to righteousness and justice. Each time a human king is given endless power and rule, it almost always devolves into a chaos of tyranny. We can think of the travails of the many Caesars who thought of themselves as gods, who thought of themselves as invincible, and how each one contributed to the downfall of the Roman Empire. It's what happens when human beings are given too much power. But God rules consistently, and he rules rightly according to righteousness and justice. We can also think of how tyranny played such a role in most uh, of the oppressive regimes of the last hundred years that we've seen on earth. The 20th century had many tyrants who, when they were given too much power, uh, ruled according to tyranny and their own will and how they wanted things to be done. But God is more powerful than all kings, but he rules rightly. Mount Sinai attests to this. God's law is a good law. We could say, perhaps, that it is tough but fair, right? No one would hear any of the Ten Commandments and they would say, well, that's just an unjust law. No, God's law is perfectly just. And it has played a role in shaping the most stable societies on earth for the last, at least the last 2,000 years. So moving on then, verses 3 through 5 Show us the goodness of God as it relates to his power. Man cannot approach his majesty. He is a God who is supremely majestic and supremely valuable. But in the background, he rules by righteousness and justice. And these next three verses portray the power of God by way of a progression. Verse 3 compares God's power to fire. Verse 4 compares God's power to a thunderstorm. And verse 5 compares God's power to an earthquake. All three of these things are things that human beings can't really control, right? Fire is something that we do not control, but rather we contain it. We figure out how to get it within a certain confined space and how to harness its power so that it can do other things. If you are responsible enough, you can set up a a campfire, keep the fire contained as you behold its beauty, but you have to make sure that you... Keep your distance, because as to its power, you cannot control it. You can only contain it. A big thunderstorm is similar, but we don't really have any way of containing a thunderstorm. Sometimes they can be awe-inspiring, right, if not completely safe, to uh, sit outside and, and watch a lightning and thunderstorm roll in. But once it reaches where you are, You usually have to go inside and seek shelter. God's power like fire. God's power like a thunderstorm. And then verse 5 gives earthquake imagery. Earthquakes are so awesome, so powerful, that they give no opportunity for those involved to observe or to seek shelter. The very mountains themselves melt like wax with a great earthquake. And thus it is in the face of the God of Scripture. God's power is like an earthquake. The point that the psalmist is making is that there is no power that exceeds that of God. There is no symbol that can capture all that he is, for he dwells in both light and darkness. His power is everything that cannot be equaled, everything that cannot be approached or contained. 
It is his to do as he pleases, and his majesty is unequaled. This is the God that we worship. This is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What the psalm is doing is it's showing us that it is sheer lunacy to think that God could accurately be represented in a way that honors him with an image or an idol. That's the work of man's hands. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah is kind of constantly commenting about idolatry, isn't he? In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet proclaims that when God comes to judge, when he comes to judge the earth, the people of the earth will throw their idols of gold and silver to the moles and the bats as they flee to find a cleft in a rock in which to hide from the terror of God's majesty. In other words, that which they worshipped in their life on earth, that's, that which they thought was uh, most valuable, an idol made of gold or silver, silver, they will regard as nothing when God comes in judgment. In Isaiah chapter 44, the prophet again mocks the idea of idols for someone will go into the woods and, and cut down a tree. They will use half of it for fire to warm their house or to cook meat. And they will use the other half to make an idol that they worship. He says this is vanity. You can see how silly it is. You go and cut down a tree, half of it you use to cook your food, and the other half you use to worship your God. So verses 6 and 7 comment on just that idea. God's reign is so clear, so majestic, so powerful, that not only is the idea of idols and images put to shame, but the psalmist calls even the gods themselves represented by these idols to worship God. Look at the end of verse 7. Worship him, all you gods. You see, the power of God puts even the gods represented in idols to shame. The end of this verse, verse 7, reminds me of the story of Dagon, right? In 1 Samuel, the god of the Philistines. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant And they put the Ark of the Covenant before the idol of this god, Dagon. And every morning as they go into this temple, the idol of Dagon is face down. And they start to realize that maybe it isn't so good to have the Ark of the Covenant around us. Maybe this god is actually more powerful than ours. And that is the point, that the god of the Bible, Yahweh, puts idols to shame. And so, for Old Testament Israel, it became clear to them, although they weren't good at following these commandments. The point was that their God was far above being represented by something made with human hands. The heavens themselves testify to God's righteousness, and yet even they cannot contain Him. King Solomon reflected on this very thing when he built the temple for the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 8, he says this, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. Solomon says, look, this this is a glorious temple, but I know that it is not good enough. And I know that my heart is not good enough to truly worship a God as majestic and as glorious as you are. But hear my prayer. Hear my prayer and hear 
my cry. The heart of the worshiper of the true God ought to mirror Solomon here. I think all of us seeking to worship God should mirror Solomon. For we recognize his majesty and yet also we tread carefully knowing that we must worship him correctly. But thankfully God has given us the necessary instruction in order to worship him the way that we should. Making an idol misunderstands God's majesty, but it also misunderstands his covenant. And Psalm 97 shows us this. The rejoicing that comes about in verse 8 seems to come out of nowhere. Since just after uh, the, the opening verse, all that there has been has been a proclamation of God's fiery majesty and power. This God is one to be feared. This God is one from whom you would seek shelter. But then verse 8, Zion and the villages of Judah are glad and rejoicing. What has caused this shift? The point is that, uh, that the psalmist makes here is that though God is powerful, he acts for his people. He acts on behalf of his people. Notice that it is not the whole earth that is glad, right? But it is Zion that is glad. Because Zion represents the center of God's covenant people. That is where they can worship him rightly. Verse 9 directly addresses God as a celebration of this very fact. It says this, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. What do we learn here in verses 8 and 9? We learn that those people who worship this God rightly, correctly, who know and who keep his covenant can find his power to be a source of joy and comfort. See, there's this switch. God is so powerful that he is to be feared. But if you know him and you worship him rightly according to his covenant, then his power becomes a source of comfort and joy. Though he is powerful like raging fire, though he is powerful like a strong thunderstorm or even an earthquake, he graciously accepts the worship of him properly offered by his creatures. So we have seen, particularly as we think about the second commandment, we have seen tonight instruction from a negative side. God is not to be worshipped by an idol because you cannot accurately represent who he is with a vain idol. But what can be said positively? We should start by saying this. God must be worshipped with how he reveals himself in his word, just like we said at the beginning. And Hebrews chapter 1 is one of the best places to go to see where God's word gives us instruction in these ways. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. In other words, God's word has been spoken in his Son, in Christ. The proper worship of God, the proper new covenant worship of God in the context now is to worship him in Christ. This is what I want us to get here tonight, is that the second commandment finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One of my seminary professors put it this way. 
Why did God give the second commandment? Why did God give his people the second commandment? He gave his people the second commandment because he was saving worship for Jesus Christ. He was saving worship for Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews goes on in the next two verses, Hebrews 1, 3, and 4. It says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And that is why we worship him. Jesus staggeringly says to the Apostle Thomas, he says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This, of course, does not mean that Jesus visually represents the Father. It also does not mean that we do not worship the Father or the Holy Spirit, for we do. It means that we are always and only worshiping God with Christ as our mediator. It is through Him, it is through Jesus, that our worship of God can be accepted. He is the fullness of God's covenant of grace. He is our only mediator because in him the perfect righteousness and justice of God are satisfied. Remember at the beginning of Psalm 97 it said righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And later on in chapter 1 of Hebrews the author says that righteousness is the foundation of the throne of Christ. Remember in Psalm 97 God ruling with righteousness and justice has to do with clouds and thick darkness. There's this fear that accompanies the fact that God is powerful and rules rightly according to justice. But the point that the book of Hebrews makes for us is that in places like Psalm 97, righteousness and justice make God unapproachable because we are not righteous and we are not perfectly just. But through faith in Jesus, Jesus becomes our righteousness and the justice of God is satisfied in him. So when we come to God in faith, when we come to him, whether for corporate worship or otherwise, we know that it is the life of Christ, that it is the righteousness of Jesus that speaks to God rather than our own goodness. The worship of God, proper worship of God, always must happen in Jesus Christ. And I think as we reflect on that, it, mu- it needs to be very comforting for us. Because the more that we learn about Scripture, the more that we learn that we're sinful. The more that we think about God, the more that we realize that we need to go to Him and to seek His mercy. So it can become fairly discouraging for us as we say, okay, So how will I ever be able to offer God acceptable and pleasing worship? So be comforted by this tonight, brothers and sisters, that if you worship the triune God in the name of Jesus Christ, trusting in Him, your worship is acceptable to God. He covers all of our imperfections, and since He is the one who speaks and intercedes for us, God remains perfectly just, even as He accepts us in the midst of our imperfections. This last point of our sinfulness 
and the mountain of our imperfections is also why Christian worship through the ages has been most faithful when it is kept simple. The church is most faithful in her worship when their worship is most simple. We are to stick closely to God's word. We are to seek to exalt him and not to exalt man. The worship of God's people is not a time for great fanfare, but a time for humble adoration and the earnest prayers of the saints. It is not a time for human creativity or invention, though those are great and wonderful things. But worship is to be a time to be reminded, to be taught for the first time, perhaps, that what God says in his word is true. That's what worship is all about. We see that God has authorized the proclamation of his word, the reading and the preaching of his word as the primary means to build us up in the faith. Even though Jesus Christ fulfills the second commandment, did you ever notice that the gospels do not give a, a description of what Jesus looked like? We have a lot of visual representations of famous people from that day. And so that was something that people were doing in order to to remember what people looked like. But the gospel writers do not give us a description of what Jesus looked like. It's because they did not want us to focus on that. They wanted us to focus on what he did for us so that we would trust in his work. Thus, God, by his spirit, is applying the word to our hearts as we sit and listen to the proclamation and the preaching of the word. The Spirit is applying the word to our hearts as we sing his praise, as we lift up our hearts in humble prayer. Simple worship that adores God for who he is, that clings to how he has revealed himself in his word. The Catechism says we should not be wiser than God, and the point is that God knows what he is doing in training us, in discipling us. And so we faithfully attend to the means of grace so that God can do his work in us. That the Spirit applies the Word to us as we sit under the ministry of the Word. Though our week begins with the formal worship of God, and, and we gather together to do this week by week, and it's a great joy for us, the call of worship does not end there, does it? Worship is something that pervades every area of our life. The Apostle Paul calls us to see all of our lives as an opportunity to give an offering unto the living God. When Jesus was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, what does he say? Caesar's image is on the coin, and so give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And his point was this. We're created in the image of God. And in Christ, that image of God becomes restored to a place where we are then able to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, to give our very selves to this God, to honor him with our lives. The last three verses of Psalm 97 focus on just that. The psalm does not end with just proclaiming the kingship of Yahweh. It comes around to give a call upon us, upon our lives. It says this, Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous man, upon the righteous, and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord. Praise his holy name, you who are righteous. 
the psalm was written for Israel as they were in exile. And so this psalm gives a sweeping call to God's people, even in the midst of being surrounded by uncertainty and despair. Even when the enemies of God's people who worshipped false gods or vain idols seem to have the upper hand, the point of the psalm is this. The God of Israel reigns. God's people were in Babylon, in slavery, exiled, filled with despair. This psalm was meant to lift them up to remind them that God reigns. So God's people are always to rejoice in him. And we do so now in Christ, both freely and joyfully. Because in Christ, even though we are approaching a supremely majestic and powerful and valuable God, he accepts what we bring to him in his Son and by his Spirit. In Christ, because of what he has done, we can worship freely and joyfully. Let's pray. So, Father, by your Son, accept our worship this evening. Thank you for your word, for this beautiful psalm. We thank you that it reminds us of your majesty, your power, but also your goodness, your tender love for your people. Father, may we hold both of those things at once so that we might never waver in our seriousness of approaching you, but that we may also never be moved to despair before you because we know that in Christ you welcome us, you call us your own, and you assure us of your love. Thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing number 483, brothers and sisters, in the blue. 483, come ye that fear Jehovah. Let's stand together and sing.
Have a great week in Christ. Receive the benediction of our God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. Amen.